Welcome to the Smart Driving Cars podcast. We appreciate your taking the time to be with us. This edition is sponsored by the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. For more information, head to MOTOETF.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi, Alan. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. It's a great afternoon here in Jersey. It's oh, about time. <laughs> we've had a pretty good week overall, I think, weather-wise. Yep, I think we've had a good week. And joining us is Salika Josiah Talbot, a professor at American University and consultant. Great to have you with us, Salika. Thank you so much for having me. And it's pretty good weather here in Washington, D.C. as well. I know. I mean, what? Are all, all the uh, cherry blossoms out and so on? My goodness. Life is good. Oh. Very good. Yeah. It, hey, yes. Knock on wood, everything. Yes. Yeah. We, yes. <laughs> well, Salika, you have a piece in, in Forbes now online headlined, Stop, Inform, Wait, How to Handle an Autonomous Vehicle Incident. Tell us a little more and, and about the need at this point. Well, it really started with this understanding of addressing education, but at a more fundamental level in terms of educating young people, children, and then hopefully in turn, they'll educate their parents and us grown folk. Autonomous vehicles are expected to do so many things, but we know like any other apparatus or technology in America, it won't be perfect. So while they will drastically reduce crashes, fatalities and injuries, there will be times where there will be incidents when they come into contact or crash with um, cars that are driven by humans. And so what do we do in those instances? And that's really how the article was born. What should we tell people to do when a crash occurs and an autonomous vehicle is involved? And, and so this stop, inform, wait is similar to run, hide, fight or stop, drop and, and roll. We don't want these bad things to happen, but in the event that they do, we, we want society be, to be prepared. Different actions than if uh, I was in control behind the wheel, I suppose? Certainly, because that weight requires um, inter some intercession by someone else to tell you whether or not you can proceed. Um, the vehicle is not being driven by a human. You'll have to have interaction with some person or some entity outside of the space that you're in. That stop means to get safely someplace, generally probably exiting the vehicle, informing, telling the responsible party, hey, we have an incident here. So hopefully there's a 1-800 number or a button that you'll push and you'll contact headquarters. And then headquarters will survey remotely what they believe the incident to be and whether or not it will be safe for you to proceed or if you should wait for alternate means of transportation. What do we know about uh, how much of this is being implemented today in the places where you do have, the few places where you do have autonomous vehicles? I guess there's really only one that truly is driverless. Well, we have Aptiv, which is on the Strip in Las Vegas, and they're shuttling um, persons to and fro, but they have their um, emergency driver in the vehicle. It's really Waymo in Phoenix area that is truly um, driverless autonomous vehicle 
in a geofence space that is operating. We don't have any specific details as to what you do when you're in the vehicle, but I think that rather than concentrating on one specific manufacturer, we should have a set of principles that is across the board, no matter where you are, no matter what vehicle you are riding in, that we know what the public response should be. Yeah, Salika. Well, we, we do we do have some places in which in which we have driverless vehicles. Um, you know, in airports, for example. You know, all the people movers in airports, um, and and in other places where we have those things. And in fact, you know, the and, and part of part of that is you know if if somehow the um, the uh, people mover at Newark Airport stops, you know, between Terminal B and Terminal C. Uh, you know, I'm not going to go out there and jump on that on, on that guideway. I mean, again, you know, uh, the, the procedures that they've implemented there in terms of the information systems and so on, I think uh, should begin to give us, you know, a follow along the lines of, of what you're you're suggesting here and give us uh, some um, um, place to work from anyway. Right. So sure, there's there is a sort of base level understanding of how you should operate on the people mover, but that people mover is relevant to you if you're regularly at the airport and using a people mover. Not everybody is operating in that space. Right. We're talking, um, you know, if you work in a business or a company every year, you likely have to watch the film that says run, hide, fight. There yeah. are instances that we have in different environments where we learn to protect ourselves, but we have come up with a national way of addressing these incidents. And that's really what I'm talking about is, is a national way, not just for you and me as people, but even for first responders and law enforcement to interact with the vehicles. Absolutely. And, I, and uh, you know, as I put in the smart driving car uh, e-letter, you know, this is this is fundamentally important, as you pointed out. Uh, yes, uh, we're all going to try to make it. So the probability of coming to rest or st- crashing or any of those things is extremely small. But, you know, um, you're perfect, Salika. <laughs> but the rest of us, hey, not, not not so much so. I mean, you know, and and, and we really and. And we shouldn't expect it. So therefore, you know, what you've what you've written here is really important just to get everybody, one, being realistic about all this stuff, first of all, and then secondly, being able to deal with it. Well, if you think about it, one second, Fred, the world in which we will first operate when there's widespread use of autonomous vehicles will also be, will have a world where there will be person-driven vehicles. So it's this co-location of autonomous and people-driven cars on the roadway at the same time. We won't flip a dime and then no one will be driving vehicles. <laughs> of course know. not. That's not going to, I mean, that's, I mean, <laughs> it may, I mean, as I like to say, look, there are still horse and buggies operating in, in Pennsylvania and Ohio and a lot of states, right? I mean, come on, guys, <laughs> what's anybody thinking out here? Oh, go keep going. Yeah. So the, the AV may not get distracted, but it doesn't mean that the people won't still get distracted. And so, there is still the likelihood of crashes. And we have to, you know, what happens when the car comes to rest? What should I do next? How do I know if all the sensors are working correctly and the radar is working correctly 
I will need someone at a remote location to be able to do some kind of remote check to determine whether or not it is safe for me to proceed and move forward. And that's one of the reasons why we wanna create this educational platform and base and have the conversation. As states begin to license this kind of conduct with driverless vehicles in places all over the country, what are the states demanding? That you need to have uh, you know, some kind of emergency signal? That doesn't tell the people in the vehicle what to do and how to respond. Absolutely. Should, should I, you vehicles, know, I was gonna say, Alan, should the vehicles have the ability for me as a passenger to tell it to pull over, to stop? Should the passengers have that capability? Well, don't you want the vehicle to stop if you don't want to be proceeding any longer? There has got to be a way for you. Otherwise, you're in a runaway car. If, if for some reason I feel that I need to stop for a safety matter, it, that safety issue could be the next passenger sitting with me in the vehicle. The vehicle needs to be able to respond to me as a human inside the car. Absolutely. I mean, that's that, Fred, that's not even a question. You go in New York City subway system, you go look in the subway car, there's a little, little glass, little thing, you break the glass, pull the red handle. Now, you know, hey, does that, how often does that happen? I don't know. I, my MTA could tell us how oftentimes, you know, somebody goes in there and who knows what for, for, for good or bad reasons. But my goodness, uh, you know, this, these things are supposed to be for people. And they've got to they've respond to a person. And if I'm freaking out in there, it better pull over. Otherwise, I'm jumping out the window or I'm grabbing something, I'm breaking the window and I'm going out. Are you kidding me? I mean, you know, these things, you know, the thought everybody likes to talk about autonomous, you know, <laughs> autonomous, it's doing driving. OK, it's doing one little piece of it. It's trying not to crash. That's it. OK, it might figure out the best route we should take. But come on. I mean, you've got to have people in the loop. And plus, nobody, nobody's going to put the responsibility completely in some AI algorithm. One doesn't even know what the hell the deep learning's doing and when, and when it's going to go. Really? I mean, that's 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 not even good enough for the funny papers. So what do other vehicle drivers need to know? I mean, they, I, I assume they have to be educated the same way the passengers of the autonomous vehicles do and, and the first responders, law enforcement, but we all need to know. I think that's why my call is for education at a very base level. I'm, I'm talking, you know, five and six-year-olds in kindergarten. This is fundamentally how we will respond in events that include autonomous vehicles. Then, uh, you know, we have kids, they come home, they tell mommy and daddy what they learned in school, right? That's sometimes how parents are learning these new information that's coming in, but it'll be part of the very fabric of these young kids as they grow and they will know what the sort of innate response would be in the event that there is an issue. And it's not just if there's a, again, I don't wanna only concentrate on the potential crash outside of the vehicle, because while we know that that is a possibility of happening, there are issues that could take place in the vehicle. What if I'm having a medical incident in the vehicle and I need the vehicle to stop? My, my point of writing this article is not just the education of the children, but really to get to those who are in the process of designing 
and manufacturing these wonderful new technologies to be mindful of all the possibilities of things that can happen and to be able to provide the passenger in the car with someone that they can communicate with in the event of an emergency. I can't rely that the car is gonna understand I'm having a heart attack. But if I'm shouting out for the vehicle to stop, someone needs to be able to intercede and make sure that the vehicle can safely pull over. There could even be occasions when you would want to stop as a passenger that if you see something outside of the vehicle that you want to stop and help or, or, or intercede in, that you might want to be able to control the vehicle that way. Absolutely. Oh, maybe, Fred. I don't know. I'm sitting in a United <laughs> Airlines uh, plane, you know, taxiing down Newark uh, runway. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I, you know, but I'm a good natured guy. I want to help everybody, but, but, uh, I don't, but the, 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 the availability of human interaction and, and human response and human intellect in trying to deal with situations is absolutely necessary for these things. I mean, you know, they can't be out there just, you know, some computer algorithm doing it, cut it out. And I, I hope that nobody that's designing these things is even thinking about that. You know, I'm sure that, that, that Waymo has a pipe in there of communications, not only to be able to hit me with advertising and, and take all my money, but also to be in there to, in case something happens, somebody's gone with a half of a brain on their head is going to sit there and say, and, and help us help us out. I mean, it has to be, I mean, kidding. Well, one and, of the things and, and it should start. And, it, and as Salika said, it really should start early. And, and also the thing that has to be part of it, I think also Salika is also respect for it. And, and so on, because because if 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 the people around it don't respect these things, don't think that they're, in fact, good for them, don't think that they're helping them, what are they going to do to them? At least, you know, I might be the first one out there trashing it. And if I'm trashing it, you know, it's just so easy. I mean, cut it out. So, you know, part of that has to be part of it. What do you think, Salika? I, you know, I think you're 100% spot on. I, I've talked about an incident that I had, now it's a little, it's more than a year ago in Washington, DC, where a Starship delivery vehicle was on the roadway, crossing through an intersection, and um, a little dog tried to do its business on the Starship, and a little boy went to kick it. Neither one of the adults who were involved in that scenario really went to pull back either the dog or the little boy because they didn't understand what that, what that thing was doing. We have an obligation to educate the public. This notion that you can test and, and, and you can map, and when it's all good to go, then we'll tell you about it, is disrespectful to the general public and in the end, will what likely create a backlash. We have to bring the general public along with us step-by-step step as we map and we test and we share what the possibilities are. If I know that this thing is gonna improve my life, if I know that this thing is going to make the world better, then I'm gonna be all for it. And if I don't have no idea what it is, 
and I just see this intrusive thing, or maybe I'm scared of it. People are throwing things at cars as they map and test. People are kicking it. People are trying to, to damage it. We have to start speaking from a louder pulpit than we're speaking now. And we have to start educating our children in elementary school and middle school and high school so that they're aware of what's happening in their communities. I think that's a really important point. And in fact, you know, in the work that, I, that I've been doing, trying to um, get uh, Trenton, New Jersey, uh, you know, <laughs> from a position of, of, um, of uh, welcoming these, these technologies and having an opportunity to provide mobility to, to folks that I think can, can really benefit from the mobility. In fact, we may have had the best success in terms of, of, of moving forward with school children. And, and with the fact, I mean, it, it, it sort of went through my mind with it. My goodness, if school kids appreciate this because they can get to school, they can go play soccer, they might go visit a friend, they might, you know, without needing to be either be chauffeured or walked, you know, for those that don't have a car uh, to, you know, to a, a friend's house or to a thing, all of a sudden, if they're embracing it and protecting it, my goodness, then in terms of a community um, uh, uh, asset and so on, uh, as opposed to, I don't know, whatever, you know, uh, actually, don't you touch that? Oh, no, you don't, or whatever. I mean, and, and, and working from, from, that pers- from that level, and then they bring it home, and they bring it to their parents, and so on. And, and, and so, you know, I, th- I think this is absolutely key to start in, in as you, just as you pointed out, in grade school and certainly in high school. I mean, I look at I look at some of these guys met with some of them in Trenton, you know, I mean, <sighs> You know, in Princeton, man, everybody has a car or whatever. Da, da, do, da, da, da. It's not that way. And, and, and to have the opportunity to have that mobility easily for them. In fact, who's going to, in fact, I think, embrace these things the most? Them. And if they're there embracing and, and helping and, and positive on this, then the rest of the folks are going to come, come along, I think. I don't know. Talk to me about this, uh, Salika. Well, it's a twofold thing. So we know that that politicians and those in the political space are very often moved by dollars and cents and money in the pocket. Should be their constituents first, but it doesn't always happen that way. With autonomous vehicles, though, I see the ability to be sort of everything to everybody. Big money in this, billions of dollars being poured into the autonomous vehicle industry. Rightly so. This is new mobility. When it comes to the everyday person, the constituent, the the neighborhood person, if an autonomous vehicle is bringing fresh produce into your community, you're happy to see that autonomous vehicle. That autonomous vehicle can take you to a better job that isn't paying you subpar salary, but paying you a real living wage so you can feed your family and afford decent housing. If that autonomous vehicle provides regular health maintenance, versus only urgent or critical care when you're getting in an ambulance going to to the hospital, that autonomous vehicle creates this groundswell of public desire and public need for it in their communities. I, I, listen, I was part of Trenton. This this is 
This is yeah, the fact. I, 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 I will. I credit you all the time as the person who introduced me to the idea of autonomous vehicles, and I have been passionate since that day. I think we've been going about it wrong, though. We often only talk about how we will help, or it appears how we will help the people in the cities. And Trenton or Washington DC or any other big government, that's not what they wanna hear because 50% of the people are like, well, we're not in the city. What's, what's in it for me? And that's where we have to concentrate, explaining that you can be everything to the totality of who our nation is. People in rural communities have just as hard and probably a harder time accessing good transportation. It means that they don't have good healthcare and their food options and job options are limited. If an autonomous vehicle can, can assist a neighborhood in an urban community, it can do just as much in a rural community. And we need to be able to talk about that today and then provide those benefits and solutions for our people tomorrow. Well, I, I agree with you 100% on that. I guess that's sort of been been my passion. You know, some people say, well, you know, look at what happened in pandemic. Everybody went out and bought a used car and, and that's how they got around. Um, uh, there, there's a fundamental problem with that used car, um, a solution to that, uh, because in fact, uh, the kind of used car that some of the people can only afford to buy is not really a very good one. And guess what? It has a broken tailpipe. And guess what? You get pulled over. And guess what? you get a ticket for a broken tailpipe and guess what you can't afford to pay that ticket and guess what next week you get pulled over again and now oh there's a warrant out for your arrest oh my goodness i mean what the hell i mean cut it out this is like this is like terrible whereas you know hey if the thing has a broken taillight hey waymo is going to fix the taillight trust me okay i mean anybody that's out there putting that out there is not going to have a broken taillight and people are going to be able to get that mobility you know and in fact you know so a family of four or five or six has one car okay what do the other three four five people do stay home barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen i mean cut it out i mean it's it's you know, <laughs> it is so valuable to, 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 to the folks who've been left behind by the automobile. I mean, yeah, you know, I'd knock on wood. I've had the good fortune, you know, at least, you know, after I was, you know, out of college, I, you know, my parents didn't have a car. You know, I, I walked to school 2.7 miles uphill in, in, in 12 foot snow, <laughs> both ways, <laughs> never mind, whatever. But, um, yeah, I mean, my goodness, the opportunity to improve the quality of life of folks who who really have struggled. I mean, the other one that I put out all the time is in New Jersey, we have Mount Laurel uh, low-income housing uh, requirements, right? Where do we locate the low-income housing? On cheap land, okay? Where's the cheap land? Huh. You got to have a car to get a quart of milk. Okay. So all of a sudden, here we go. We have now low income housing. We have affordable housing, but we have unaffordable mobility. I mean, why don't, why don't we, why don't we get to the point in which we provide some mobility to those folks that we've, we've put there? I don't know. It dri drives me nuts, but whatever. Well, Alan, it would be cheaper if we provided mobility. I think part of the equation when we look at government intervention is, well, I had to do it on my own. Nobody helped me. 
and I don't want to pay for anybody else. But we already are paying for people. We provide food stamps. We provide supplemental care. And that care is exponentially more expensive because people do not have transportation. If we provided mobility options, then people would have the opportunity for a job and they would have, and then they would be able to leave subsidized care and subsidized living. And it would cost the US much less. It costs more if you're treated in an emergency room than it does if you're treated at the doctor on an every month or every six month basis. So if we provided mobility to healthcare, it would cost us less. And the person who is not reliant on that subsidized care would be having to pay less out of their pocket. That's what equity is. And when we look at the society as a whole, a lot of the issues that we have when it comes to transportation are baked in inequities from the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where people went to their jobs in the city and then got in their own personal car and went safely home to the suburbs, which in some cases were deed restricted to prevent minorities from living in those suburbs. Now, good meeting urban planners are taking metro systems and expanding them because they wanna help the people. And when they expand them, then the rents go up in those communities and the people who live there have to move out because they can no longer afford to live there. So you've created an expansion that is just gentrified and pushed out the very people that you're meant to help. When we look at transportation, it can't be just a you and me conversation. We may mean well, you and I, Alan, but we don't live that life. The yeah. people closest to the problem are the people who should have a voice in the solution. And what we have with planners and policy people in DC is they talk to the self-appointed community leader who says, I want A, B, or C, but they don't talk to the mother who's pushing her stroller with her two children down the street, having to walk a mile or two to get to a bus, to then get to a metro, to then drop the kids at daycare before she even goes to her job. We have to do better as a nation. Absolutely, Salika. You know, you know the the whole summit that I've put a, put together this year. You know, with sixteen session, the last session. What's what's our objective? What we what are we going to try to do on Thursday? I just want people to come on who are who are in the neighborhoods that that, that need that that. Tell, tell me or tell us, what is it that they need? As you said very clearly, unfortunately, I, or fortunately, I don't, either way you want, I haven't lived that. I don't know. I might think I know, but I really don't. We really do have to listen to the people in the grassroots. Uh, maybe some of their neighborhood representatives, but not too far removed. Because in fact, otherwise, I don't think we really know what they need, what they want, how they would like it. And in a sense, the better we can determine that now, the better we're going to now design these things because we're still at the very beginning. It's not a retrofit at this point. And it's, it's, it's a focus. We saw what came out with the first, with the first autonomous vehicles. Oh my goodness. It's a Mercedes zero F one five zero, whatever with, with champagne and a D da da da. And if you're not, if you're greater than, than 28 years old, da 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 da. I mean, are you kidding me? 
I mean, those entitled people, that's what we're doing this for. No, no, it's, it's for the people whose, whose quality of life we can most improve. And I, unless we talk, as you just mentioned, unless we talk and really bring those people in on the discussion at the beginning, we're probably going to screw it up. Is it too early, Salika, do you think, to, to bring some of this into the infrastructure plan, this $2 trillion plan that, that's been introduced where, not too far from where you are? We're almost too late. Um, the conversations that I have, I'll give you an example. It's not autonomous, but it's electric. Talking to someone in the electric vehicle space, they run an association. And the person says to me, well, people will just plug in out in their homes or they'll plug in at their jobs. I live in the city. I love it. I live in a walkable community. I can't plug in in my house. That's an impossibility where I live. I don't have a job that allows me to plug in because the infrastructure doesn't exist in the job that I have. The communities that we want to help, that we're expecting to help with a new electric-centric mobility, they have nowhere near an infrastructure capable of handling those changes. And yet we're full speed ahead on electric vehicles without really spending more time on infrastructure in that realm than we are on just saying we're gonna move to electric vehicles. The same comes when we talk about autonomous vehicles. We're going to give people credit. And now I hear that they're going to up the credits possibly to $10,000 a vehicle. <laughs> so the average vehicle in the U.S., if you, want to, if you want to just get in the car market, it's 30 grand for a base model, you know, low end car. If you make minimum wage, you make, you're making $15 an hour. That's your entire year's gross salary right because because it's two thousand hours of working a year sort of the rule of thumb everybody everybody uses i mean you know give or take but two thousand times 15 is what you just said it come on kids so creating this this new system right this new infrastructure we haven't moved off of our current funding basis for our roads and our highways and our infrastructure, we're gonna throw a lot of money in it. And yet we haven't brought all the states in to have a conversation. And again, many people are focused on cities. We're not looking at rural communities and places like New Jersey, which is where I live for 20 plus years, you know, one of the most densely populated states in America as one of the poorest public transportation systems in America. People just can't get from point A to point B. Without that mobility, you don't have the opportunity to improve your life. So when people on the outside are saying, I pulled myself up from the bootstraps, did you really? Or was there a transportation infrastructure that allowed you to increase where you are and to do better and to have some upward mobility? Let's give everybody else that same opportunity. 
Yeah, well, you know, New Jersey, we have this great system that will get everybody to Wall Street. I, I don't know if anybody really wants to go to Wall Street anymore. Anybody who, who needs to go to Wall Street can do it at home. I mean, you know, uh, if you're going to have a blue-collar job, okay, which a lot of folks have blue-collar jobs, guess what? This computer does not help me with my blue-collar job. If I have to dig a ditch, I have to go where the ditch needs to be dug, okay? If I have, and that's, I mean, you know, might be nice that we could all, I mean, hey, I, hey, uh, we're talking about me cut my grass. Hey, I'm going to have the computer. I, what, you know, that, that, that's the situation. And in fact, the people that need mobility the most are really the people that, 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 it, that we've left behind by the automobile. We've had all these wonderful, I'll call them wonderful, Amazon jobs at Amazon facilities because at least Amazon was out there somewhat early paying people 15 bucks an hour without you know yelling and screaming about it or whatever. They could do better and so on. But how in the heck do you get to the Robbinsville uh, sorting or distribution center? New Jersey Transit doesn't go there. I mean, it's, you know, they're next to the turnpike. Nobody, they, 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 and plus they put a, you know, a bus out there that they, you know, serve it. Not, not when people need to be there to punch in. Okay. And, and so on. So in fact, the only way that those people can be served is with these kind of vehicles that are on demand can go not everywhere, but a lot of places. And in the morning, take people to work to their to their jobs where they have to be there using their using their blue collars and their muscles, which is what they and that's what the, you know those that use this and use this. I mean, yeah, you know, they can. Anyway, what do you think? <laughs> the one of the examples that I use is. Um, people who say, well, we don't want delivery robots because you're going to take away jobs from delivery drivers. Delivery people aren't making $15 an hour. It's hard to live on $15, but they're not even making that. So why are you fighting for a job for someone to have that doesn't provide them with a living wage? Let the robot do that delivery. If you're trying to get to these places where we're building sort of these industrial zones like an Amazon warehouse, you're 100% right. A lot of the workers there are spending 20% or more of their take-home pay on transportation to get to this job. When you're making a decision, it's not that you don't want to work. It's not that you don't want to put your brain and your brawn to use. But if your family is better off if you stay home because you don't have transportation to get to your job, and if you use transportation dollars, you're going to have less to give your family so that they can eat and live, you may make the choice that you're not working. Instead, as a nation, how are we moving into a new era without thinking about transportation as really the, the platform for every single thing that we do? I had written an article um, probably a, uh, maybe about two or three months ago in Forbes.com talking about an AVEVZAR. The Biden administration claims that they want to build back better. And my, my real sense to them is if you really, really mean it, create an AVEV czar. Because the issues of transportation don't just lie in the Department of Transportation. You affect housing, you affect healthcare, you affect commerce, you affect energy. 
AVEV is everything, every part and facet of our lifestyle will be affected. For those who are less mobile, the opportunity to move as you will. Don't think people understand if you have to rely on an access transit mobile, sometimes you have to order those a week or two in advance. They don't have a, that's, that's not mobility. It's not mobility. And, and they cost 60 bucks a ride. That's what New Jersey Transit ends up paying for, for those things. It's the, the opportunity that exists by having a computer drive a vehicle to provide on-demand mobility and so on is that that computer doesn't have a family to feed, doesn't have a kid to send to college doesn't have all those expenses, doesn't need to sleep at night, doesn't need an eight-hour job with, you know, 15 minutes off here, an hour for lunch, and so on. You can program them to do whatever they need to do whenever the hell you want them to do it, okay? And in fact, when you actually look at the cost, why? Because it's all Moore's Law. It's all, it's all, scale is, you know, the individual costs go to zero, Okay, you can offer, you know, 25 cents a person mile or something like that. Uh, yeah, hey, if you're on a if you're on a high capacity bus route, yes, you can you, you, it doesn't cost you 25 cents a a, a a person mile. Problem is that's only it's only 1% of the person trips in the nation today are served by a subsidized transit system that is essentially totally bankrupt and they can't serve another person because that's an even more diffuse trip. It would be, you know, they've served all the people they can do cheaply and even then they need subsidy. Okay. So now the opportunity to go out there, provide affordable mobility to, to everybody. And if somebody needs a little bit more help, Oh my goodness, compared to what it, ta- it takes today to, Never mind. I think the thing is to get the people who have the, the easy mobility today to realize how important that is and, and, and move on it. We'll be back with more. But first, this is a good time to remind you about our sponsor, the Smart ETF, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. To get more info, head to MOTOETF.com. On the website, we should point out it's a good idea to read the white paper. It's called The Smart Transportation Revolution. It's under the Insights and News tab. Some great information there to help you make better decisions about investing. You may know ETFs can be a smart way to spread risk with investments and even focus on a particular category of stocks. The site, once again, is MOTOETF.com. We're back with more of the Smart Driving Cars podcast. And our guest is Salika Talbot. Salika, what are your thoughts about the companies that are in this space today and, and perhaps lawmakers and officials, what they should be doing to learn about the, the community needs? We've talked about that they need to do this. They need to talk to the community. What specifically can they do to, to, to make that a reality, to make that happen? Well, I think that, um, as I said before, those who are closest to the issue are the ones who they should be having the conversations with. If you're sitting in Silicon Valley and you are not a, a part of the communities that will eventually be served, you're talking to a public policy person, some, some head of public policy in your office who may be talking to lawmakers, but isn't talking to 
real community representatives, people who live in the areas where you will service, then you're missing the whole point of this being a mobility for all proposition. Lawmakers can, they can mandate education. And so education is paramount. I talk about reaching out to those who are in elementary schools and middle schools. If you're going to get a driver's license today, you should still be educated on what autonomous vehicles mean, how they can impact your communities in your neighborhood, and, and the potential for how much they can better our lives. We can and should educate our children. Government can mandate that. And then we need to be able to move throughout the community and reach public sentiment. We do these big surveys. Are you excited about autonomous vehicles? I haven't told you what the autonomous vehicle is gonna do. The general public is presuming it's only for really wealthy people. Why should I be excited about it? You're gonna tell me it's gonna make my commute better or my transportation options are gonna be greater or people are going to, more people are gonna have access to better housing, uh, nutritional food, jobs, good healthcare, then I can get excited. Then yes, as a public person, I'm gonna be looking forward to the possibility of autonomous vehicles. Government hasn't done that. Government, frankly, is still hiding behind the corner they haven't issued any real regulation around autonomous vehicles. I'm, I'm not talking about something heavy handed, but we can't get past this 2,500 vehicle maximum. So widespread what? We haven't addressed liability and insurance. Companies don't know what to do or what to expect. They're hoping they may try to lobby, but we don't have the real grown up in the room, big government, federal government stepping in and saying, okay, this is a pathway within which you can operate. I'm not gonna limit you so much that you can't move throughout the lanes, but I'm gonna have some bumpers for the government that says to industry, this is, this is the space in which you can operate in. And these are the things that we expect you to do as you operate in this space. And, and to Alan's point, Alan said this to me years ago, and I probably pushed back at that time because I was the government, but Government can, can feed the opportunity for widespread use of autonomous vehicles because just like government went out and is contracting for electric vehicles so that they can deliver the mail, government can contract for autonomous vehicles so they can move people for whom they are paying for social services. Really, really interesting. Alan, uh, you have some comments in, in the latest smart driving car newsletter, if we turn to some other headlines, on a New York Times report headlined, first of all, Tiger Woods was clearly speeding, so why didn't he even get a ticket? Well, <laughs> why didn't the car manufacturer get a ticket? Okay, that car knew how fast he was going. That car knew where he was. That car probably knew if he was on a cell phone, okay? Why did that car allow him to do that, okay? So people are putting the technologies in there, into the cars. You know, before we provide, you know, driverless mobility to folks, guess what the, the big 
economic value of all this technology is, which everybody is seeing. It's the comfort and convenience aspects in the high-end cars that I'm going to buy. Okay? They see me as the target. They saw Tiger Woods. Okay? That car, that, that car had all the sensors. Okay? It had the knowledge. Why did it let them do that? Okay? Oh, he decided, wait a minute, you empowered him and probably your commercials put it in his brain. Oh, man, the only thing I want to do is go fast. Why? Every time I watch, I mean, you know, I watch I, I watch golf a couple of days ago. You watch uh, Mercedes out there. What are they advertising to the top folks who are watching Augusta? OK, all the, you know, rich white guys. OK, AMG. What did Tiger do? It wasn't an AMG. He went, I guess it was a what, uh, whatever it was. Wait a minute. You're pumping me up to misbehave on the road. You know I'm misbehaving. And you can go, oh, oh, no, Alan decided it's on him. He was hurt bad enough. He almost lost his life. What if I would have been standing in the road next to him? And he ran me over. So it's not just him. Now, I guess it, it is raises the responsibility going to go to the manufacturer of these things. And they're going to say, oh, my goodness, damn it. Wait a minute. Well, that, that's the issue that, that you're raising here with all of the new safety equipment being built into the vehicles. Do we then hold them responsible because they've put this in there if they don't take control and, and, and prevent an accident from happening. Sure. Because Tiger might have might have assumed that it would. That it was good enough to take uh, to go up that hill or down that hill or where that, whatever at, at twice the speed limit. Okay. And they know it can't. Oh, maybe if you have their Formula One driver and so on and so forth. <sighs> Me? Tiger, I mean, yeah, I mean, Tiger hit a golf ball. I don't know how well he drives a car or used to be able to hit a golf ball. I, you know, I, I, do you have any thoughts about the, this line, response? Uh, huh? Salika? Well, I think that um, one of the things that car manufacturers have relied upon through the years is the intervening conduct of the driver. They get to step out of the realm of liability because the driver is there and the driver has the ability to make those last minute decisions. Well, as cars get much more technically um, able to handle roadways without the intervening actions of the driver, then we do have to take a second look at issues of liability. In this case, I, the truth of the matter is, Alan, you know, I used to be a product liability defense lawyer um, I can tell you in a case what like What haven't this, you done? <laughs> Talk to me here, Salika. <laughs> case like this, you know, if you're representing Tiger Woods, of course you're suing the manufacturer of the vehicle. You're either saying there's a manufacturing defect or a design defect, but you know who else you're suing? You're suing the town. They have this roadway that is a known danger that people are operating on on a regular basis and they have maybe not the correct signage or the appropriate signage or enough signage. Um, 
Tiger Woods, like other people who were involved in crashes, find themselves as as the law has designed it, where where the presumption is always going to be that the driver was somehow at fault. As we move forward to this wonderful, innovative technology that can parallel park my car and find a space in a shopping center and all these great things that the car will break and lane assist and all of these things. Don't forget smart park. (laughs) (laughs) We are more and more removing the driver from the responsibility of the actions of driving. And if that is the case, then the law around this has to evolve to put more responsibility back on the manufacturer and the designer of the technology, since that who is, that's who is ultimately doing the driving in more and more of these circumstances. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, I mean, the, the car industry has had a wonderful hundred years, okay? They build something, they sell it to me, and they say, sucker, it's all yours, man. You, you use it however you want. It's on you. Of course, you know, okay, I'll learn how to run. But now everything, it's all my responsibility. It's all on me. Now, all of a sudden, hey, they're advertising out there. Geez, I can take my feet off the pedals. I can take my hands off the wheel. They might even imply, as Elon has, I can hop in the back seat. Whoa, man, I'm thinking, Man, I'm 16 again. I'm going that back seat. Whoa, I've been there. And uh, well, what am I? 39? I, well, maybe a little more than that. And all of a sudden, hey, no, the fine print down there said, no, 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 no. You're responsible. Forget it. You turn the damn thing on. It's, you know, you, and it says in there, you have to maintain attention. Okay. You have to have your butt in that driver's seat. Oh, I didn't read the fine print. I think we I, I don't it. recall the fine print. I got it for you, Alan. The solution is an autonomous vehicle insurance pool. Because what you don't want to do is to stymie innovation, but you have to make sure that there is something that is going to address the risk that people are facing when they're when they're in these vehicles. If you had a if if manufacturers were paying into a pool then I'm not calling you a manufacturer bad guy. What I am doing is making sure that there is money to address crashes and injuries and victims in the event that there is an issue. Well, no, I, I, I might disagree with you. I mean, we have to have a little debate here. <laughs> I don't mind a debate. I, you know, the, the, the disagreement is the manufacturer knows when, where the stuff works and doesn't work. The manufacturer knows that you have to maintain attention, okay, because there are situations that they know that this sucker is not going to work and they can't predict that. So therefore, they should only allow you to turn it on when you're paying attention, not when you're in the backseat, not when your butt's not in the seat, not when, and, you know, it shouldn't allow you to go in as fast as you want to go. It just shouldn't, okay? Alan, we can't get people to agree to wear face masks. You're going like, to convince them to give up control of their car. Well, that's, that's a big issue. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, then, well, then, why should they give? Why should they give me the? Why should they take over? 
Why should it do these things in places where where it can't, where they know that that it's going to, it's likely to get me into trouble? You're giving the government a pass because government is standing by and they know people are getting in the back seat of these vehicles and driving on the roadway. And they've said nothing. It's as if they're not reading the same papers we are. Before you start getting on the manufacturers, government is only too happy to take money from the manufacturers. They're, they're happy to determine when a recall needs to be made, but they haven't addressed the issue of technology and shame on them. I want government to step in and say, your vehicle needs to properly and clearly say you can do A, B, or C in it. And if your vehicle doesn't say it, you can't be on the roadway. And then we wouldn't have these crazy incidents with people who are pretending that they have a self-driving vehicle when we know that that doesn't exist for them right now. It's like, I'll, I'll argue with you some more because I love arguing with you. I'm a good Republican, man. I don't want, I don't like government. I, I'm not really a Republican, but I'll, I'll claim I'm a Republican here. I don't like government. Look, let it, let the liability exposure get them. Okay. If all of a sudden Genesis is not responsible for, is not held responsible for allowing the car to go 80 some miles an hour in a place that it shouldn't go 80, 80 some miles an hour. Guess what? They're going to put a thing in there that says, hey, Tiger, yeah, we told you we, you could go 84 up the hill, but damn it, we're not going to let you. Well, I am a good Republican, and what <laughs> I will say to you is this. <laughs> government has completely missed the mark. I'm, I create my vehicle. I think it can do that. Government tells me whether my seatbelt works okay on my vehicle. <laughs> government has crashed on me to say whether or not my vehicle's um, airbags you know, are, are activated as they should, but government doesn't want to say anything about whether a vehicle is autonomous or not. That's not a, you know what? Good capitalism, capitalism says the government needs to say something in this space. Very, Maybe I will very, become a good Republican. Very... <laughs> <laughs> well, along uh, these lines, Alan, uh, from Jalopnik, there's a headline in, in the newsletter. Tesla owners take to Reddit asking what happens if full self-driving isn't real. <laughs> it isn't real. I mean, I, I love it. You know, I mean, hey, wait again, minute, this is like capitalism. Holy, this. well, I wait. Forget about forget about that. What about what about the IRS? Okay, are they accruing the revenue associated with that before they deliver it? I think there are there are accounting rules that don't allow you to accrue revenue if you haven't delivered the product okay now i'll bet there's a long time ago i gave i gave a long time ago i gave tesla a thousand bucks so i'd be on the list of 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 mobile of of of, uh model three deliveries okay i still haven't bought my model three i wonder if they've accrued my thousand bucks but 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 more seriously these things are ten thousand bucks a piece Okay. The, the full, what the heck the have they quote, done with the revenue? Right. So, and, you know, so we'll, we'll do, we'll do, you know, like a Al Capone thing, you know, we'll bring in the, uh, the IRS on this and it should fix things, won't it? <laughs> That's a good Republican thing, isn't it? <laughs> it's still government stepping in and telling you. Uh, 
Anyway, uh, we have a good time here, Salika. Okay. Yeah. Alan, you've, you've got uh, another thing in the newsletter. You highlighted an interesting AEI animated chart showing the world's top 10 producers of motor vehicles annually from 1950 to 2020. And when I started out there, I didn't see China in there at all. And then all of a sudden, they are so far ahead of everybody. Wait a minute. I first went to, to China in 1978 and in Beijing, there were what, five Russian limousines and that's it, you know, and the whole, the whole whatever. So, of course, in, in 1950, there wasn't much of a Chinese auto market. I mean, uh, it is really interesting to watch that graphic. Okay. Because you go back to the 50s and 60s, U.S. produced more than half of the the automobiles in the world. So go to smartdrivingcar.com, take a look at the newsletter and follow that link. That's Yeah, I mean, just look at it. I mean, it is it is very informative and to see how the, you know, countries go back and, you know, the implications on electric vehicles is that, I don't know, I mean, they're going to be lime scooters, skateboards on, you know, what, 300, 600 EV companies in China, who knows? I mean, yeah, well, whatever the number is, it's big. And what they're just going to do, do and the, and whatever. And, and, and where the is the electricity China, going? The, where's the, the electric, where's the electricity going to come from, Fred? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's I mean, right now the marginal electricity is produced by coal. Okay. And if you're converting from one thing and now you're going to use electricity, you're using marginal electricity. And how's it going to get to, man, talk about an infrastructure problem, an issue. If you're not going to take basically have to at least double energy production, I don't know, whatever. And one, another story that you're highlighting in the, in the newsletter is Apple's Tim Cook dropping more hints about getting into the autonomous car business. And you know what's not going to be on the back of that car. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Adam Jonas, uh, a week ago on, on Smart Driving Cars, made it very clear to everybody, uh, you know, um, an Apple car is not going to have a tailpipe. Period. There is, that's probably the only thing that's probability one, okay, in the whole world. <laughs> Everything else it might be 0.99999. That has, it might even be greater. That might be the first thing that has a probability greater than one is that, is that the Apple car will not have a tailpipe. You, you, Apple wants to be as far away. I mean, can you, never mind. I mean, just the images, go ahead. Well, they're good. They've got a lot of fans, Apple does. Yep. And if they do, you know, make good on the, on the promise here, or it's not really a promise yet. It's, it's a rumor. Oh, who knows what they're <laughs> going to, it, it might just be a, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't, unfortunately, I'm not, so, I'm not so sure that Apple is, is so, is trying to provide mobility to people whose lives could be really improved by the mobility. I, I don't think uh, that's the unfortunate part of Apple. I don't think Apple li lines up with what uh, Salika and I have been discussing. Um, Excellent but point. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, tying in with this whole discussion, the final thing from the newsletter we'll bring up is it's from The Verge. Uber and Lyft have a driver shortage problem, and it's costing them a, a lot of money. 
and this is what this is all about. You've been talking about this all along, Alan, that there aren't enough drivers and especially the drivers who, who deserve a, a living wage yeah. to, to make this real. Yeah, I mean, we've Uber and Lyft are fantastic, but but we've taken advantage of people who, uh, you know, were desperately trying to, you know, do good by their families or something and out there, uh, you know, providing this mobility to us at um, at um, at not a living wage. And, 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 you know, and, and so, uh, you know, I guess there are enough people that are willing to, to, to do that and, and can justify doing that to provide some mobility. Great. And those of us that can afford it really should be tipping those people an exorbitant amount. Okay. To, to, to help them feed their families and help them send their kids to college and all the other things that, that families should do. But in the end, my goodness, as, as this increases, you need more and more drivers. And all the, all the drivers that are willing to basically do it for free are they're not coming out of the woodwork anymore. Well, the pandemic, I suppose, may have had something to do with this. I mean, the driver has to do his or her job with who knows who getting in the vehicle and keeping an yeah, eye on that person to- wearing a mask. They've had to clean it. They've had to do a lot more with it. People are, you know, uptight about it and whatever. And, you know, I don't know, but people have said, I don't know. And, and maybe they don't, you know, the, the risk to them with somebody else in their car and so on and so forth. They finally looked at that. I guess we've had some stimulus money to help them out a little bit. Great. Give them more. Uh, but my goodness, and it's not as if Uber and Lyft are providing, you know, there are more than a billion person trips every day. Even, well, you know, a few, little fewer uh, in, in, during the pandemic, but billion, 35 million in New Jersey every day. You know, Uber, Lyft, not 1%. Not 1%. And that's, a, that's, that's basically using up the whole opportunity or people that you can take advantage of or are willing to work for nothing. Now somebody says, hey, I want a living wage to drive it to drive an Uber. <sighs> the hell's the cost of an Uber ride? Again, that's that's the whole reason to put a computer there is because we've had this wonderful Moore's Law. I don't know that we deserved it, but in fact, it's allowed us to basically take the things that go in to make that driver and basically scale. Uber drivers don't scale. They get worse with scale. These things get better with scale. Ubers get more expensive. Zalika, you want to chime in with a final comment on that? Listen, I have to agree. I think that we should stop trying to hold on to things that aren't good for the people who are being abused by these ecosystems that we we are tethered to. Uber and Lyft was wonderful. It's a great idea. But yes, replace the person with the machine because the person can't feed their family based on what they're making with those Uber rides. 
Yeah, there are only so many people that live at Downton Abbey, you know. There are only so many people that, you know, um, that were married to the Queen of England. God rest his soul. What a, what a great, well, anyway, what a great life for him and, and so on, but whatever. Um, well, we want to remind people, Alan, that there's still one session left in the Smart Driving Car Summit. Uh, next Thursday, live at noon Eastern. Again, it's uh, focused on making it happen. And the series has been groundbreaking in many ways. Really congratulations yeah. on it, Alan. Yeah, we had a great session today, uh, last uh, on Thursday, and, and it was really wonderful. As somebody pointed out, it was great to see a state senator, a Republican state senator from Florida, uh, talking nicely with a Democratic assembly person from New Jersey, and they were actually, you know, they were civil together. I mean, it's but, worth the price but, of admission. Salik and I were somewhat civil today, so, uh, but I'm a good Republican, Salik, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's it's live noon Eastern on Thursday. Head to smartdrivingcar.com to register and get more info. We really want to thank our guest this week, Salika Josiah Talbot. Thank you so much, Salika. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Salika, great having you. Thank you. And everybody have a good weekend. It's still a nice weekend here in Jersey. I think it's going to rain all next week, but we could use the rain. And the the um, the, the the cherry blossoms are magnificent we Take also care. want to thank our sponsor alan the smart etf smart transportation and technology etf the ticker symbol for the etf is moto and more information is available at motoetf.com again you can find us at smartdrivingcar.com also on anchor fm spotify TuneIn, apple google spreaker amazon has us on podcasts now soundcloud a whole bunch more and you can get your smart speaker to play us too you can find my tech reports at textination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with Alan Kornhauser. Thanks for listening or watching, and please stay safe.